the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. People kind of laugh. They didn't know if I was serious. And I talked to them like, yeah, no, I'm serious. I think the Democratic Party is losing its mind. Like, I can't support it anymore. My own ideas about the world were changing, but certainly under my feet, all of the, 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 the more repressive impulses of progressivism were beginning to make themselves quite evident. In a culture as politically polarized and aggressively tribalized as ours, how do people change their minds? I'm Georgie Borman, a mother, author, and cultural commentator born and raised on the West Coast. I want to know what we can learn from people who've been on both sides of contentious issues, whether they end up on the right or the left. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the 180 Cast. They thought that some nefarious right-wing conspiracy is going on. Hi, welcome back to the 180 Cast. I'm your host, Georgie Borman. In our last interview on the 180 Cast, we spoke with Libby Emmons, who writes for The Federalist and The Post-Millennial primarily, and she explained how the left wing that she had been surrounded with had left her behind and with the, the new conformity pressured through the trans agenda, that was the standout issue that shook her. And now as an old school sort of boilerplate liberal who believes in federalism and individual sovereignty, she's become a go-to writer for conservatives, interestingly, on the transgender issue, especially. I do enjoy reading her, as I said in that last episode as well. Um, quite the trajectory from being a playwright in the progressive New York theater community. Well, in that interview, Libby mentioned someone else that was important to her story and who seems to have made a similar journey. In fact, you could say maybe he started the ball rolling for Libby herself. And I thought I definitely must have this person on the podcast. My next guest is a writer I read all the time. He is the New York correspondent for The Federalist, where he's been writing since 2013. His work has also appeared in The New York Times, The New York Post, National Review Online, The Weekly Standard, among others. And he is also the former artistic director of Blue Box World, a Brooklyn-based theater project. David Marcus, thank you for coming on the 180 cast today. Oh, it's my pleasure. All right, before we jump in, please... Do become a 180caster by subscribing to the podcast. A new episode is posted every Friday with bi-weekly breakdowns where I talk about the news and the issues of our day with a focus on bringing moral clarity out of all the cultural and political confusion. So if you have a friend or two or a dozen who would find this episode of interest, go ahead and hit pause and share it with them. And please do not forget that you can leave your wisdom, your rants, your raves, your absurd opinions, or all of the above on the flip phone at 323-999-1802. That number is listed in the episode description because I know that you will not remember it. And with that, let's go ahead and jump in. Okay, so David. On this podcast, we usually start with what someone's ideological background was before the proverbial apple cart tipped over. Like Libby said, she grew up Catholic, and that's where she adopted a lot of her more progressive values. What were you raised believing, and what did you believe by the time that you sort of made it into the theater community? Um, well, I mean, I was born in the 70s, so my parents, one of whom was Jewish and one of whom was Catholic— <clears throat> they weren't quite sure what to do. So for some reason, they gave me until I was 10 to pick one. And so when I was 10, I picked being Catholic and I was baptized and um, received First Communion. And then I, I didn't have confirmation as a teenager. But then just a few years ago, I kind of was coming back into my faith a little more heavily and I got myself confirmed. So I'm a... Uh, I'm not quite a trad cath, but I, I am definitely also a Catholic. Um, so yeah. And, and, you know, 
growing up in Philly, that kind of tied into politics because there used to be this mold of a Pennsylvania Catholic pro-life conservative Democrat. And so that was sort of my basic ideological thrust growing up. So if somebody asked you, like when you were a teenager, what's your take on politics? Like, what would you say? I was very heavily involved. Like before I got, before I kind of got the acting bug and got into theater, I had assumed that I was going to go to law school like my parents and that I really wanted to get into politics. So the first campaign I ever worked on, I was 13. Uh, it was for Michael Dukakis. And I'd spend every day in the summer and then after school going to his campaign headquarters in Philly and working for him. Um, then in 92, which was the first time I could vote, I got really infatuated with Pat Buchanan. Um, and so that started to change my, I'm still actually pretty infatuated with Pat Buchanan. Um, <laughs> I'm saying about Friday cause I'm doing the McLaughlin group, but I'm always excited to see Pat. Um, but yeah, so I, I was flexible, right? I mean, then Bill Clinton got elected. I actually voted for him and the general, and I thought Bill Clinton was fine. And an important thing to remember about the nineties, is like, we didn't care about politics like this. There was no Twitter. There was no Facebook. Nobody hated Bill Clinton or Bob Dole the way that like people hated George, uh, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and, you know, especially Donald Trump. Like this was just not a part of our society. So, you know, going through my twenties, it really wasn't until after nine 11 and, you know, the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq that politics again. And by that time I was fairly firmly entrenched in the theater scene and politics kind of came back into it. Um, in the arts world of the 1990s, politics was not a big deal. We were in the glow of the post-Cold War and like everything kind of seemed fine. So you're saying that sort of in the 90s, you were more flexible ideological, like ideologically, and the people that you threw in for, it was more based on like how you felt about that person, like sort of what a lot of people talk about when they say that they believe in certain candidates. Sort of. I mean, that that would play a role in it. But I mean, for me at that time, there were usually competing interests. I mean, there were things that the Democrats wanted that I thought were good. There were things the Republicans wanted that I thought were good. One thing that's been stable, one of the very few things that's been stable the whole time, and maybe this is the result of having to spend the first 10 years of my life deciding what religion I wanted to follow. But, um, you know, the, the one thing that I haven't flipped flop a lot on is um, what I want out of judges and what I want out of the Supreme Court, um, which is a pretty originalist understanding of the Constitution that makes it very hard for the federal government to interfere with individual liberty and, and, and the rest of the things that the Constitution provides for individuals with the United States. So th that was one through line that was constant. But yeah, at least in the 90s, like, I wasn't worried about Bill Clinton messing with that too much. Like, and, and so yes, I, I saw good in both sides. So by the time you got into theater, you said it was like the post post Cold War glow a lot of our listeners probably don't remember the Cold War, and frankly, ni neither do I, really. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about what that was like, what that felt like, what people were thinking about, what they wanted, what kind of art they wanted to make? Yeah, um, it, it, it wasn't political art, um, for the most part. There was not in any of the worlds. I kind of started off more in the visual art world. I was writing a lot of catalog essays. My, one of my very good friends was sort of a hotshot curator in New York. So he kind of brought me in to do that. And I spent a lot of time in that world. And the visual art world still, for the most part, kind of exists in this, on this weird plane beyond politics. It's like, strange trips to Italy and, and like, they're just, they're just like sitting in parts of New York that like politics does not infect. I don't remember it ever coming up in fact. Um, and in theater again, like the first time that I saw it really become a big issue in theater, unless you were talking about revivals from like sixties plays or, you know, stuff like that. Like you, you could find it back then, but post nine 11, um, the first year that in New York, we ran our 10 minute play show called Sticky that ran for 15 years, the first one in Philly and then 14, I think, in New York. Um, so many of our submissions were centered on 9-11 because it was such an overwhelming moment for the country and for New York in particular. Um, and that's when I started to see more political art and then even more 
once the anti-war movement started, you started to see more of that. And then just progressively between now and then, I think that theater artists in particular have come to view, gay marriage was a big part of this, um, view their role as more political than they had when I first started out. And we were more interested in sort of aesthetics and beauty and things like that. Do you think that same evolution happened with TV productions as well? Because I don't remember seeing quite so many things that were quote-unquote controversial in television programming like dramas and comedies back when I was a kid versus now. So was that like happening in tandem, do you think? Uh, it doesn't, it's funny. It doesn't, and this is the thing I write about a lot. It doesn't quite happen in tandem. What really tends to happen is that writing talent and acting talent and producing talent gets developed now in colleges and in the not-for-profit theater world. And that's where TV will eventually start to draw from. So you'll have someone like Tony Kushner, who's a drama student in the mid eighties, kind of gets tapped kind of specifically for his left-wing leanings, right? Angels in America becomes a sort of big famous playwright. And then by the early two thousands, he's writing major screenplays, including the biopic of Lincoln, who was the first Republican president. And Kushner's an avowed communist, not even a socialist, but a communist. So it actually, if, 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 if culture is downstream from politics, theater is downstream from TV and movies, um, because that's where a lot of this talent gets developed. And that, that brings a more progressive brand and a more political bent to uh, the stuff that you started to see by the 2000s and certainly into the 2010s. This is fascinating. Before we continue, though, I want to let you, the listener, know that this episode is sponsored by MyPillow. I have a MyPillow. I like it because it's fluffy but moldable, so I can adjust it to exactly my comfort zone. It doesn't make my face sweaty either. It's light, so it's great for travel, unlike those heavy memory foam pillows. I wholeheartedly do recommend this pillow to you. Mike Lindell, the inventor and CEO of MyPillow, wants to give you the greatest night's sleep ever. And you know that you spend about a third of your life in bed. Sleep is so important to your overall health. So I want to let you know that you can get awesome discounts on all MyPillow products by going to MyPillow.com right now and clicking on the listener specials. You can get steep discounts on MyPillow's mattress toppers, bed sheets, so much more. And now for the 180cast listeners, Mike is offering his best-selling offer of all time, the buy one, get one free offer today on the standard MyPillow plus free shipping. And in case you didn't know, MyPillow products do come with a 10-year warranty. That is a lengthy warranty for a pillow. But MyPillow has just announced that they are extending their 60-day money-back guarantee as well. That's right. Orders placed between now and February 29th will have their 60-day money-back guarantee extended through May 1st. 2020. So go to MyPillow.com right now and click on the radio listener specials for the buy one, get one free offer on Giza Sheets plus free shipping. Enter promo code 180CAST, 180CAST, or call 800-506-2641 for these great specials. That's 800-506-2641. Use promo code 180CAST. Okay, back to where we were. Theater scene. Post-Cold War. We were just talking about culture and um, how TV is downstream from theater. Okay, so theater, as you said, sort of took a turn more towards the political and definitely on the left side of politics. So where were you when these things were happening? Like, where were you in your headspace? What were you thinking of all of this? I mean, I would say up, up until 2008 or even like 2010, it still wasn't that big a deal. Like people knew that like I was to the right of them and we'd have sort of conversations about it, but like it was fine. It still wasn't like everyone hated W, but like even the hatred of W was almost like a silly hatred of W. Like, Oh my God, look how dumb he is was usually the like thing. Right. So it's still, it still just wasn't a big issue after the election of Obama. Um, it's it's I was thinking about even just the title of you know you said the the 180 podcast and I think the assumption is that it's the individual who's making a 180 and in throughout my life my experience has been that 
I'm making part of that move and the ground underneath me is making the rest. Yeah. Uh, so sometimes it's 90% and 90 per, or, or 90 degrees and 90 degrees. Sometimes the, the ratio is different. Um, but I was definitely great way to put it. Yeah. You know, I was definitely reacting to ground moving under me. So whatever the percentage was for me in that 180 degrees, there were definitely things happening, um, where I was changing, but certainly I felt like the democratic party and the left in general was moving away from, uh, some of the principles, uh, that I believed in. And this was even before really counterculture hit, not long before, but a little bit before, but I could sort of smell it in the water as like certain issues would come up. Intersectionality is something that I think I probably knew about about five years before anybody else did, because theater was one of the first places where these questions really started to emerge. And like, you know, can we still do traditional productions of the Mikado? You know, how do we handle racing casting? Like th- these, these all sort of bubbled up as like important ideas that the that progressives would address in a very specific way. Um, and that I kind of addressed in, if not the opposite way, at least in a different way, um, especially sort of in defense of the Western tradition, I, I, I might say. But um, yeah, it started bubbling up then. And then for me, by 2012, when Obama was running for reelection, at that point, we had sort of worked out the format of our show where I was the host of it. And I had a fair amount of time where I was just doing sort of like banter with the audience, which was fun. You know, was, and it was this, the, this, the, um, the, the sticky production that yes, we mentioned? Yes, it still was. It was the whole time. We, we were, we were doing that show the whole time. Um, and one of the really interesting things about that show is because we were doing five or six, 10 minute plays a night, we were working with like half the directors and actors in New York. So, I mean, our, it was a little bit of an inside baseball show where like there would just be a ton of theater people there and a lot of interesting work kind of grew out of it. Um, so that's who I was talking to when I'm suddenly like defending Mitt Romney. And, uh, and people, you know, people kind of laughed. They didn't know if I was serious. And I talked to them like, yeah, no, I'm serious. I think the Democratic Party is losing its mind. Like I don't, I can't support it anymore. We ran one show during 2012 where we encompassed in a debate between myself and this um, playwright named Michael Niederman. And I spoke on behalf of Romney and he spoke on behalf of Obama. And um, still, again, still pre-cancel culture, still like, you know, basically we're having fun. Like maybe a couple people are like getting annoyed at me, but it's still like not a big deal. And then for me, what happened was, the year after that, I started writing for The Federalist. And the very first piece that I wrote for The Federalist was about how the National Endowments for the Arts should be defunded and how producing artistic companies should not get 501c3 tax deductible status. And my argument had not, it wasn't the Jesse Helms obscenity argument. It was, I thought it was bad for the art form. Um, participation in theater in terms of audience participation has been slipping for 30 years it really speaks to just like a tiny niche audience. There's most people have no idea except for Hamilton, what the hell's going on in theater. And I, I sort of became convinced that this was because market forces are not driving the art form. Instead, a bunch of gatekeepers, basically instead of going after audience, you're going after grants. And I kind of wanted to blow up this system. So did you pitch, did you just like write something and then pitch it to a bunch of different publications or did somebody like, did Ben reach out to you? Ben Dominus reach out to you and ask you to write this? I had been reached out to by an outlet called narratively.com that's still around actually and, and runs some really fascinating stuff. Um, and I forget how we even got hooked up. I think it was an actor friend of mine was dating the editor at the time and mentioned my story and he thought it was interesting. So I wrote them a fairly long form essay about my experience as a conservative in New York theater. And then honestly, one day I was just sitting on Twitter the day that the Federalist launched and somebody who I follow must have retweeted Ben who said, uh, today we're launching the Federalist, a journal of religion, culture, and politics. And I tweeted at him and I said, Hey, congrats. That sounds great. Like how might one go about pitching you? So he sent me his email. I sent him this pitch and like the next week I ran my first piece in the Federalist. So that was sort of the, 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 wonderful happenstance story behind that. Now, now it's seven years later and I'm still with them. So what happened after you ran this? Did people in your theater community read it? Uh, yeah, like sort of through my, my Facebook stuff and, and social media. 
and alarm bells started to get raised. But I think they were still in the attitude of like, okay, Dave's writing for this obscure new conservative website. We know he thinks this about the not-for-profit system. It's kind of interesting to talk about, but it'll never happen. And I, I, I do think it'll probably never happen. But so shortly after that, I did an NPR hit on like Scott Simon's weekend show that a lot of New York theater people listen to. And then not long after that, I did like CBS Sunday morning again, like being the conservative guy who's against the national endowment for the arts. And now that I was on a platform that they knew was sort of more significant and influential, the blowback started getting worse. Like there was one moment in the CBS interview, which is television interview. And they had interviewed me at my buddy's theater space and they wanted an exterior shot. So they were like, can we walk by, let's just walk down the street. And next to my buddy's theater space was this other theater space. Um, and the other theater spaces like name got caught in this shot and everyone there like freaked out at me as if I was somehow trying to implicate that this is a company called New York theater workshop that I was sort of trying to, to insinuate that I had something to do with New York mm -hmm. theater workshop. Which, I mean, honestly, I don't think they've ever done very good, much, you know, much, much good work to begin with. Like, there's no reason I would personally want to be associated with New York Theater Workshop. But they thought I was trying to, like, add their name to my conservative ideas. And it was really kind of, it was a crazy idea. I mean, you know, even after I explained what happened was the cameraman wanted an exterior shot and you just happened to be on East 4th Street, they thought some kind of conspiracy was going on. And that was one of my first, like, that was one of my first moments where I was like, okay, I've just given you a perfectly reasonable and obviously true explanation for this. And you're still convinced that some nefarious right-wing conspiracy to quote Hillary Clinton is going on. Maybe this situation I have in the New York theater scene is not going to work out quite the way it had been. Why do you think that they cling to this idea that, you know, this conspiratorial idea versus accepting your explanation? I mean, that's, I don't know that that's a question I can really answer. I mean, I do know that by that time, even before Trump, but just a little bit before Trump, now we had entered the, the, the beginnings of the cancel culture period, right? Now we have the moment even where like, I believe it's 2014, Kevin Williamson will write the piece in the, in the Chicago Tribune about how Laverne Cox is not a woman. And after like a day or two of protests, uh, the Chicago Tribune uh, retracted the piece. We started to see like style guides about that and other things sort of changing all over the place. And it was becoming much more obvious that not, so, not even so much the Democratic Party, but the New York City intelligentsia was beginning to embrace a much more radical concept of progressivism than they had been previously. And I think it's probably tied into that because I think... I think to embrace that kind of burn it down radical progressivism, you have to believe some pretty bad things about the status quo. Interesting. So when Libby put her foot down sort of on the transgender pronouns and identifiers, she, she mentioned in her interview that there was like this meeting and of like a women's theater collective and they were all supposed to go around and like, say what identifier they used, like whether they were cis or trans or and their preferred pronouns and stuff. When she put her foot down on that, what was your reaction? Do you, oh, do yeah. you remember that? No, I, yeah, of course I do. Um, no, that was a really painful situation because they had a good project going and like, you know, Libby's a really fantastic producer. Um, you know, she did most of the like hard work of producing. I did most of the like, you know, blabbering and trying to be entertaining. Um, so no, I mean, that was a, that was a seminal situation because I had given up by that point. I had really dro just dropped out of the theater scene completely. I was writing pretty regularly, not just at, at that time for the Federalist, but as you mentioned, like a whole bunch of conservative outlets and really starting to make my professional life in that world instead. And I knew that that was a drag on her in some ways. Um, but I think people were relatively tolerant of that until, you know, Libby started, as you said, putting her foot down. And yeah, it was it was terrible. It was like, um, you know, I felt really bad and there was nothing I could do about it. But like, it, yeah, it, that sucked. You know, like the ball was sort of already halfway down the hill at that point. 
Yeah, I mean, it was clear, the theater community made it clear that there are certain views you can have and there are certain views that you can't have. And if you hold the views that you can't have, they have this whole like set of terminology about how like, you know, uh, you know, they're, they're getting triggered or like, you know, you're creating an unhealthy environment or that this is, this is bad for my self being or my wellness. And, you know, once you reach that point where it's like, don't say your idea in my presence because you're doing me some kind of harm. Some people go so far as to say violence. Yeah. You either shut up and go along to get along, or you can't do it anymore. So that's a tough choice. So after you ended up starting to write for The Federalist and write for other right-leaning publications, why did you lean into this so much and sort of make this your career instead? Was it really, was it sort of because of what you saw that attracted you more to the conservative side of things side of things, or was it more like you said earlier, the ground was shifting underneath you and um, the, what you saw in the theater community and the New York intelligentsia sort of was like pushing you in that direction. It it was both. Um, You know, when I started at the Federalist, I, you know, when I started at the Federalist, the Federalist itself um, was kind of thought of, of as a more centrist, kind of place that was, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the sort of like prominent never Trumpers guys like Tom Nichols were very prominent writers for us. Um, we were sort of down, down the middle on some things, you know, on other things, not, you know, not on abortion, not, not on some like, you know, of the, of the other issues. But, um, yeah, it just, as I became more exposed to conservative thought, you know, my, my knowledge of like conservative thought was kind of limited to like, reading commentary, National Review, and, and you know, watching George Will on TV. <laughs> and so I, I started getting exposed to a lot more of the ideas, and I think that that did move my, my own thoughts and continues to, um, you know, even up until this day. There are definitely, like, there are positions I hold today that I didn't hold two years ago, you know, that were affected by things like the, the So Rob Amari David French debate that made me think of things in a, in a way that as a sort of, classically liberally based person I hadn't. So yes, my own ideas about the world were changing, but certainly under my feet, um, all of the, 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 the more repressive impulses of progressivism were beginning to make themselves quite evident. Okay. So you mentioned that you've changed a couple positions in the past couple yeah. of years. Now, now, now you've opened a door, David, and and now you've got to walk through okay. that door. So, you, can you tell me a little bit? For instance, the Sorab, uh, the the Amari French debate, which for the listener who doesn't spend a lot of time in the insular Twitter world um, and doesn't watch live streams of nerdy conservative debates. What was that about and like what exactly shifted your so, opinion? So like full disclosure, I'm, I also write columns for the New York Post where So Rob's my editor. Um, uh-huh. But um, I, I had made I, I had made this show. I happened to meet So Rob after I had already sort of like at least put one foot in, in his side of this uh, debate. But just to get that out there. I, but, you know, I also wrote for National Review where David French was for years and years. Um you know, my natural inclination. So the, the 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 debate, the the touch point of the debate was this drag queen story hour thing, where drag queens are brought into libraries to read stories to, um, uh, you know, toddlers and young children. And part of the idea of these organizations is to expose them to the concept of gender fluidity and and you know stuff like this. Um, in my opinion, these events are sort of sexualized and, and in so Rob's opinion, they're sexualized in a way that I'm not comfortable with in terms of this being something in the public square for kids. Mm-hmm. And so Rob wrote a missive. I forget where I, th- I want to say it was at first things. Um, it was where, where he coined the term Frenchism <clears throat> saying that David French's version of conservatism was basically too libertarian that he was willing to go have fights in court about like religious freedom and free speech, but he wasn't comfortable with government saying to the library, you can't have drag queens reading to five-year-olds. So Rob, I think would also be far more comfortable than David with things like um, government enforced age verification for porn on the internet. So, I mean, a lot of these questions just have to do with the fact that like we have this new public square where a whole bunch of things that even 15 years ago would have seemed 
completely crazy um, have become commonplace? And does the state have a role to to play in all of this? Um, and I was convinced uh, in many ways by the arguments that So Rob was making that if the state completely abdicated its ability um, to have things like obscenity laws, to, to, to take some control over this kind of thing, that it would be communities ultimately that lost their ability to police this and it would be corporate entities and only the marketplace that was in a position to, to make decisions that I prefer communities to have some say in. Mm -hmm. So like, was there something specifically that he wrote in that essay or the previous essays when they went back and forth in this weird, highly publicized op-ed battle that like really stuck out to you? Like, Oh, okay. I get it. Like for instance, the obscenity laws. Yeah. I mean, what, one of them, I mean, one of them was definitely, and this is something that really was like, not just on Twitter, but like within the, the whole conservative sphere for at least two or three months became a, a big deal. But <clears throat> I mean, one of them was that far too often David French was talking about winning these court battles. Oh, look, we're, we're winning court battles. So we're doing well. And it, it occurred to me, and I think Sorab at least touched at, at this, as did some of my friends who I would talk to, that the court battles are, prob are sort of the problem, right? In the 1950s and 60s, most religious freedom cases had to do with non-Christians having the right to worship or not be forced to engage with the dominant culture in ways that made them uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. By the 2000s, that had flipped on its head. And now our religious liberty cases have to do with whether Christian bakers have to bake cakes for gay marriages. They never, by the way, have to do with whether Muslim or Hasidic Jewish ones do. That somehow just never seems to come up. And that, that ties back into the concept of intersectionality and the hierarchies. And because Christianity was viewed as the dominant culture, um, it, it was being asked to bend in ways that other religions wouldn't. Um, and so, yeah, when, when, when David French kept saying, like, well, we're winning these court cases, it occurred to me that the reason that we're even having these court cases is because our society has shifted in such a dramatic way. Are there ways that we can shift back to a society that has a greater assumption of religious freedom than the one that's currently under attack where, you know, thank God once in a while we, or maybe even a lot of the time, we're able to push back with court victories after people get sued and have to spend thousands and thousands of dollars defending themselves. Do you see that that debate as more an issue of emphasis versus policy? Because a lot of the people who paid attention to this were lamenting the fact, including myself, that there was just not a lot of policy specifics. Like Amari was not like, I want to see X, Y, and Z policies, and here's how that will help fix things. Do you think it's more a matter of emphasis where Amari's like, I recognize that the culture is changing and the culture is really important. What happens in the court may be somewhat important, but you know, French, you're, you're over here and you're not, you're not recognizing that. No, I, 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 yes, I think so. But I will say like, you know, as, as, as big, important philosophical, political debates go, this is a, this is a fairly nascent one, right? Like this has only been going on for, I think under a year now, or, you know, maybe a year. Um, and yeah, look, I think so Rob was raising an alarm. Um, I think so Rob was raising an alarm that, that, that was less focused on policy positions, but that's not as, as, as the op-ed editor of the New York Post or for my job as the New York correspondent at the Federalist, like, our job isn't typically, here's a bunch of policy positions, right? That's the job for the people at think tanks. That's the job for people at the Manhattan Institute and American Enterprise and Hudson. And, you know, those guys write white papers. We write op-eds that have to be like entertaining for readers. Um, I've tried to address some, I, you know, I've, I, I've tried, for me, I think the age verification um, for porn on the internet is an interesting one just because I remember being like, 16 and if i wanted to go try to buy like a playboy at the bodega i had to either have a fake id or like hope that the guy was willing to break the law right like like we have laws <laughs> about this right so so i don't really understand what it is about the nature of the internet that means that you know my son who's nine right now can just if i don't have 
sufficient filters, and I probably don't, right, on, on devices can just go find porn and not have to provide any form of identification or any way of and, and you know, Ben Donich always gets mad at me when I make this point because he's like, these kids are just going to get VPNs. Like, it's not going to matter anyway. But I guess my position is like, even the barrier itself is is sending a message to the kid like, this is not for you. You're not supposed to be here. Mm-hmm. And I do think that in this regard, they're, they're kind of getting a message and a wink that says like, well, nobody really cares if you're here or not. So, you know. You heard your friend at middle school talk about it, so why not go check it out? So I, 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 I do think that sending that message at all is better than not sending the message, even if it doesn't stop 13-year-olds from watching porn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a point that I came to realize a, a while ago was, for instance, with, with mar- marijuana laws, um, which you know I support legalization, but one of the points that I do grant is, well laws sort of determine what a lot of people think morally speaking it sort of de- is deterministic for their morals because they don't have that theological underpinning that yeah. we used to have as a as a mostly christian society so it's like well if you take that away what else do you have well you have the laws like abortion is like um a lot of people say, well, it's my right. And you're like, but it's wrong. And they're like, but it's my right. The Supreme Court said it's okay. Yeah. I, no, I mean, I definitely, and you know, my favorite Woody Allen movie is Crimes and Misdemeanors. And there's a, there's an amazing scene in it where the protagonist who's, you know, trying to consider whether or not he should murder his mistress, who's like, you know, threatening to tell his wife about their affair. I guess it's his, his brother-in-law or his son-in-law is, is a rabbi played by Sam Waterston. And, you know, the line is, he's like, he says to the guy, he's, he's like, Judah, could you really live with yourself if you do that? And, and, and the character says, well, what choice do I have? And Waterston says, you know, without the law, it's all darkness. Now, I'm, I certainly don't think that the law always has to come from government. And I would, I would be thrilled if, if, you know, either religious or philosophical concepts of law played a bigger role in, in, in people's lives. But I don't think we can completely abandon it and, and, you know, just, point at things and say, well, we got to accept this because it's the blessings of liberty. Right. I guess ultimately the the question that a lot of people are concerned of is like, well, if you give one side this power, then, well, we're a democracy. And the, if the other side comes in and gets that power as well, you could easily just flip things over even faster than they were yeah, before. But, yeah. But part of the problem with that is that I think, I think, one of the important features of the 21st century thus far is that um, progressives have proved far more effective at controlling the culture and conservatives have proved far more effective at controlling the government. So to concede too much on the government side gives way too much power to the culture where we're losing incredibly badly. So I, you know, I think that's a balance that conservatives in particular really need to think about how much power they really want to hand over to the culture side, because we don't have, you know, I just did a, a, a CPAC panel with some wonderful people that, on this very subject of like progressive hegemony of the, of the culture space. And it's, it's total, I mean, almost, you know, like it's, it, it's huge. So I do think that if governments where conservatives have some power, we, we have to think about the ways that we can effectively use that to influence culture. That's a good point. I hadn't quite yeah, thought it, of it, it that it, way before. It, it, well, it's almost, it's almost the inverse of Breitbart's point because yes, Breitbart's right. The culture is ultimately going, willing grace is ultimately going to lead to gay marriage as is angels in America, right? Mm-hmm. Culture is going to move its way through this level of acceptance and stuff. But especially in areas like abortion and stuff like that, we can fight back on the governmental level, right? The the abortion debate has changed in so many fascinating ways over the past five or six years where progressives have really leaned in. There's that TikTok video the other day of Mm -hmm. like, you know, the girls sort of laughing, oh, I'm going to have an abortion. There's Kat the Pollitt's book Pro. Democrats don't say seats, don't say safe, legal and rare anymore. Mm -hmm. That's, That's not part of their lexicon. Now it's very much, no, this is a social good. This is something, you know, if not, we should have more of that, that we should at least like celebrate in some sense. Mm-hmm. I saw a tweet the other day that said abortion is love. Oh, great. Right. OK, so fine. 
So then the question becomes, okay, so we're conservatives and we obviously think, or pro-life conservatives anyway, obviously think the concept that abortion and love is completely abhorrent. What's our best chance of fighting that? Is our best chance to try to stake a claim in, in the culture space where we're going to be able to make this opposite argument? Or is our best plan to use the tools of government to propose bills where we end up with polling that says, well, how comfortable are you with third trimester abortion? And then people say to themselves, oh, not so comfortable with it, actually, right? And so you fight on that governmental space in, in, instead of in the culture space. And ideally, you want to be fighting in both. But clearly, <laughs> conservatives have, have way, way, way more power in the governmental space than we do in the culture space. Yeah. So as as we go into the general election pretty soon, I think that this question matters for the right in terms of, like you said, you know, you've sort of been persuaded more toward the Amari version of seeing things. And Amari, Saurabh Amari sort of fits in more of that, like, what, the Orin Cass sort of camp mm -hmm. with the Marco Rubios that are more, like, more populist, more market critical. Um, yes. How do you see, like, the, the sort of pro-Trump wing of the right capturing and holding those people and is like the MAGA strain and the, the new right for, for lack of a better word, or the more populist right. Are those, are those going to, to stick together? Um, Cause I'm just wondering like where the right goes from here, because a lot of people have said, Oh, conservatism is dead. Like, you know, the, the free market individual Liberty type that, David French subscribes to that's sort of dead. Is that where we have to go? Or do you think that there are some undercurrents that might be eventually move things back in the other direction? I mean, for, first of all, I would say that in terms of certainly in terms of voters, and I ultimately believe in terms of people who are out there publicly expressing themselves as conservatives, it is overwhelmingly pro-Trump at this point, which is something that took me an awfully long time to get to. You know, it took, it, it took me at least a year and a half into his presidency. And I was like, all right, the sky's not falling. I'm actually getting a lot of conservative wins that most previous Republican presidents would have told me to like be patient for. Um, you know, obviously the judiciary is going like gangbuster. So blah, blah, blah. Like all, all the reasons that people like me who were completely never Trump in the primary, like eventually came around to Trump. Um, that, that is in terms of total number of people, absolutely the, the dominant part of conservatism in the United States. The other side of it, the sort of never Trump side or the dispatch or the bulwark or the principal of conservatives who met the day after CPAC, um, they have, this again goes back to, uh, you know, government versus culture in a sense, or, or because they have a, a really disproportionate face in the public square. Like to my way of thinking, I don't think there's anybody who consistently writes for the New York times or the Washington post who I would think of as like actually really conservative right now. There's there's one or two exceptions that I'm forgetting about, but it's not their regular roster. It's not Max Boot. It's not Jennifer Rubin. It's not, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think that these are people who have a constituency of influence, but not any constituency of vote. I don't think they represent any large swaths of the country. And I think when, when you go back to Selena Zito's reporting in 2016, and this is something that I've really tried hard to emulate, like I've traveled across the country a couple of times now, like really just trying to talk to voters who aren't in New York and DC. Um, they're not being represented by the national review brand anymore. Like, like if they ever were. So I think, I think that tension exists there and I don't know what the answer is. I mean, a lot depends. Both, both sides have a lot depending on this next election, because if Donald Trump goes down, then the never Trump wing is going to have some strong argument to make to, you know, put Mitt Romney back on the horse and let's, you know, let's go back to where we were. This was clearly a failed experiment. On the other side, after Joe Biden's remarkable Super Tuesday, if Joe Biden becomes the nominee, the Bernie Sanders AOC wing is going to have to ask themselves some questions about whether they're better off with a Biden win or loss, because they're kind of in the same position of being like, no. 
This is the same corporatism. This is the same neoliberalism. This is not the change that we need. We need more drastic change. So maybe we're better off with four more years of Trump where we can build that younger base. You know, so these tensions are existing on both sides. I've seen so much change in the last three years um, within the conservative movement that I wouldn't even dream of trying to make a prediction. And the only other thing I'd say is that I won't even predict where I stand a year from now because I'm open to ideas and I think things are changing so fast that you have to keep yourself open to ideas. On that front, on keeping yourself open to ideas, what, seeing as how, you know, in the past couple of years, you have changed your mind about things. And I've come to realize that changing your mind on things is like not as common as you would want it to be. What advice do you have to people in terms of keeping their mind open? Because especially with social media and curating the people we follow and the people who are our friends online, there's that bubble effect, right? That everybody is always talking about, I think, because it's so important. How does one keep their minds open to potentially having it changed in this, you know, in 2020? Jeez, I mean, that's a hard question. I, I mean, one thing that I found certainly since Trump was elected is that like my Facebook feed, more than my Twitter feed, I use Twitter professionally for the most part. Like, you know, I have personal relationships on Twitter, but mostly my Twitter is political Twitter. You know, my Facebook is now this sort of like has become this sort of interesting balance of like my former progressive or like theater or old high school friends or whatever who who can still tolerate me and a bunch of new people who really like my conservative writing and there's there's a subsection of those people who are actually able to engage in like constructive conversations with each other and when that happens like I almost cry <laughs> um because it is rare but but it does happen and so I would say like if there is that odd person on your like social media feed and you're a progressive and every once in a while they're sharing something from the Federalist or you're a conservative and every once in a while they're sharing something from the nation, like ask them, you know, be like, hey, from my perspective, if you see something come across your feeds, which I'm sure are different from my feeds, shoot it my way. I'd like to see it. And I have that relationship with a few people. And I find I find that that's helpful. And then in general, I mean, you can do it yourself, you know, just go. I, I think I think Real Clear Politics actually does a pretty good job of aggra- aggregating both sides. Mm-hmm. So if you just go to RCP in the morning, often what often what they'll do is they'll they'll set one conservative article off against one right above it or underneath it. That's like from a more progressive outlet. And I think that's really useful. Like read them both. See what you think. Yeah. One of the things. Uh, I've come to realize is it's kind of like talking to people or listening or reading people that you disagree with, or, you know, who are of a very different background than you. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like a muscle, right? Because the more you do it, the easier it is. But if you go a long time without, you know, hearing anything but your own echo, that muscle tends to atrophy. I think that's right. But now I'll I'll say something now that's going to sound like horribly partisan, but I actually (laughs) do believe that it's true. Um, I think that if you are a conservative, you are exercising that muscle again because of the cultural space. Every time you watch the Oscars, every time you watch The View, every time you watch late night television, right? That the, you know, Kimmel or, or, you know, whatever it is. So I think as conservatives, because the, the progressive agenda controls so much of the culture, we actually exercise that muscle all the time. We exercise it in our kids' school, right? When our kids come home with like, you know, a reading assignment about like how maybe Tom or Thomas Jefferson wasn't that awesome because he owned slaves, we have to exercise that muscle um, in, in wherever we stand on that. And we have to kind of make a decision on that. I think that the left for two reasons, one, because they control so much of the culture, but also because the left tends to be um, uh, far more densely populated in places like Brooklyn, where I live. Mm -hmm. Um, They're not living in 60, 40 communities. They're living in 90, 10 communities. So I I think in general, progressives get a lot more day-to-day reinforcement of their own ideas and conservatives get a lot more day-to-day pushback. And so I think progressives maybe 
need to work that muscle a little more. I think it's probably more atrophied than it is for most can, you know, unless you're, you know, someone who just doesn't turn on the TV, unless it's Fox news, you're, you're probably seeing a fair amount of the other side. That's an interesting point, but I'm not sure it makes, I'm not sure it makes conservatives more likely to change their minds, which, you know, to me is an indication that they're, they've probably mostly got their facts and evidence sort of in order, which, you know, that's why I'm a conservative. But at the same time, I've seen people do radical flips going from like super mega to supporting Elizabeth Warren, which is just, I still can't wrap my brain around that. <laughs> that's not as crazy as you might think. When I, one of the stories I love to tell about 2016, and I went to Trump's New Hampshire rally, <clears throat> and I was able to go again this year, same rally, um, very different atmosphere. But um, when I was interviewing people at the 2016 Trump rally in New Hampshire, and this was still when like people didn't really think he had a chance to be president, I would say to people like I always do when I'm out on the, in the, the election field, I'm like, so you know, who, what candidates are you kicking the tires of? And over and over, people were telling me, I'm trying to decide between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. I, I'm like, <clears throat> I was like, what, what? <laughs> like that makes no sense. Like explain this to me. And other people were hearing this too, and it took us a while to figure it out. But what it had to do with was just a real distrust of the establishment. Mm -hmm. Just this feeling that like between the mainstream Republicans and the mainstream Democrats, like these were just guys wearing like different colored masks. And at the end of the day, they were just going to keep like continue, you know, doing continuing resolutions, keep free trade and globalism going to where it was like, you know, nothing was really going to change with either set of these people. And so there was definitely a segment of the population, especially in those places that feel like globalism left it behind, right? The Rust Belt, which is why Donald Trump is president, who said, I'm sick of these people. Like, I, as far as my issues go, I've had the same president for 30 years. These were Ross Perot voters in 1992, right? And they never went anywhere. And Trump was able to tap into it. And finally, those people were able to get enough power to win the Electoral College. But yeah, I mean, they, they just they just don't want business as usual because they think business as usual generally screws them over. This is stuff we all should be chewing on, I think. I feel like we could do this podcast for like three hours, but I won't keep you that long. <laughs> Thank you for joining me today, though, David. Like, this has been this has been awesome. I'm so glad that you could, you know, come on the podcast. That was a pleasure for me. You can follow David on Twitter at Blue Box Dave and find his work at The Federalist, where he is the New York correspondent. I do encourage you to go check it out. Always worth a read. And call or text the flip phone at 323-999-1802 if you want to flip out or try to flip my position on something. Maybe you're flipping about flipping out about something I said about abortion or marijuana or something like that. Or, you know, tell me about your own 180 story that's 323-999-1802. And of course, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at 180cast. Please give the podcast a review on Apple Podcasts if you like it. It really does help. You can follow me on Twitter at Georgie underscore Borman, where I opine on politics and culture. And I am a senior contributor at The Federalist. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. In the middle of struggle, Lord, let me see. What I need, who I've got in the middle of a struggle, Lord, let me see who I am, what I need. Executive producer Kevin McCullough. Music by Ruthie Kraft and Joe Kim Nordenson. What I need, who I've got in the middle of a struggle, Lord, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got to be. Yeah.